LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com You have asked, are we happy? Are we happy and effective? Consultation with leading experts in the field makes it perfectly clear perfectly clear that we are all now programmed for perfect happiness perfect happiness perfect happiness perfect happiness there are of course occasional technical or electronic errors in programming and or surveillance which produce perverse exceptions first they start skipping prescribed drug dosages then they begin touching then indulging in various sexual acts and the ultimate perversion love for such extreme psychobiological misfunction only isolation will do. You know how a game serves us, nations are bankrupt, gone, none of that tribal warfare anymore. Even the corporate wars are a thing of the past. So now we have the majors and their executives. Transport, food, communication, housing, luxury, energy, a few of us making decisions on a global basis. Now everyone all the comforts, you know that. No poverty, no sickness, no needs, and many luxuries which you enjoy just as if you were in the executive class. Corporate society takes care of everything. And all it asks of anyone, or is ever asked of anyone ever, is not to interfere with management decisions. You still don't get it, do you, boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything, the whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. What's wrong with having it good for a change? Now, they're going to let us have it good if we just help them. They're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Hello and welcome, Jay, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be back. Okay, Jay, today we're doing part three of our little interview series discussing your book, Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film. And of course, we've been getting into a lot of other related things that you didn't necessarily cover in the book. I do recommend that people hop back and listen to the first two installments, which the links to which can be found on the web page for this particular section. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to go straight in to continue our chat. All the preamble stuff that, about your book, etc., etc., can be found either in one of the other interviews or at the end of this one. So now two things that we threatened to talk about last two occasions where first movie was uh, Zardoz from 1974. That's a film by director John Berman and starring Sean Connery, of all people, not long after he actually finished up uh, his second stint as James Bond. Now, Berman is perhaps better known 
Um, I guess one of his best known films is probably Deliverance, um, with Burt Reynolds and John Voight and the other guy whose name I can't remember, the fat dude. And, uh, a, very, a very wholesome family film. It is, yeah, no. And also Excalibur. When I say, when I say family, I mean that in a very extreme sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to keep it in the family. And <laughs> so, um, yeah, if people haven't seen Deliverance, they really do need to do that. Um, it still actually has, not, we're not here necessarily to talk about that, but that, for me, right. that, that, that film still has the power to shock, even though I've watched it quite a few times. You know, yeah. there's definitely something about it that's, um, visceral. Well, you can go about 30 minutes from where I am and find people living in conditions fairly close to that. Yeah, or you could not do that. You could just stay in town and, uh, lock your doors. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were talking about the mullet people, but, uh, yeah, we were you know, talking first we? episode. And, uh, yeah, it gets worse than just the mullets. I mean, the South has a lot of great points to it, but there really are still some of those, you know, very, uh, destitute backwoods types people. Yeah, wrong turn type stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Excalibur is another one of John Berman's films. That's, uh, his Arthurian, his take on the Arthurian legend, which I always find. Yes, it is interesting. It's very Gnostic. Yeah, it is, yeah, it is rather. It is rather. But I say, I wanted really to talk about Zardoz because this mm-hmm. fits in with some of the themes that we picked up last time, last two times, specifically talking about science fiction dystopias, you know, visions of the future, uh, but also things being laid out in decades gone by that would very much tie in with things that have happened since, particularly in the realms of technology, science, and society, and things that look a lot closer to happening than they did back when movies such as this kind of laid them out. So Zardoz is an interesting film. I mean, visually, I find it quite ravishing, really. There's just so many points of interest, so many scenes and uh, sections that you just kind of go, wow, look, you know, look at that. Particularly at the time, it's one of those things where I can't quite imagine what it would be like going to the movies to see that for the first time. But, did, you, did you like um, my underwear? Shaken, not stirred. Well, my underwear. A, yeah, listen, you got to love Sean Connery, haven't you, really? He's one of those actors that he hasn't got any other accents, you know. I'm not it's sure. the only one, uh, and I'm in my underwear. Push <laughs> it. I'm not quite sure how he got into acting. I know he used to be a milkman. He seems to be a guy that's kind of can act up to a point, if you see what I mean, but he's never he's never bravely taken on. That's a good question. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, and and uh, he wasn't, you know, originally the choice for Bond. It was a lot of other people that were in the running first, and you know, Patrick McGowan and people like that. But uh, yeah, 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 I don't, I don't really know a lot about his background. But yeah, Patrick McGowan. Who? Well, by the way, in case you, I don't know what you call them, or if you ever had milkman in the U.S., but basically, it's kind of died out now. But uh, for many years in Britain, you would often get your milk delivered to your door. Um, right. by a dairy company and they just drove around in these little electric trucks <laughs> delivering milk. It seems bizarre now, but, uh, yeah, they had, the U S had that like in the fifties and sixties. And I think it kind of died out by the seventies. Yeah. Well, Sean Connery used to do that. But anyway, the point about his accent is no matter what film he's in, it's the same, isn't it? Highlander, Scottish accent. That's a good point. Yeah. Hunt for Red October, Scottish accent. Well, um, I was just on a podcast and we were talking about this the other day and we were, it was funny because it's like, all of those big time A-listers that reach a certain level, you know, they pretty much just play themselves over and over. And uh, some of them even joke about it. Like, 
like uh, Jack Nicholson, you know, he just always plays Jack Nicholson. <laughs> you know, Al Pacino is always Al Pacino. Robert De Niro is always Robert De Niro. Oh yeah, there's a um, there's a little comedy show here that ran for a few years called Stella Street here in the UK. It's a cult thing; almost no one's ever heard of it. But it involves a load of movie stars who all live together on the same street, uh, <laughs> and it's it's totally unlikely because it's a mixture of Hollywood people. I mean, Jack Nicholson lives there, Al Pacino lives there. Um, <laughs> Joe Pesci lives there, but equally Michael Caine lives there, Roger Moore lives there, and they're all they're all next door neighbours. And on the shop on the corner, the Seven Eleven is run by Mick and Keith from the Rolling Stones, and it, it's just it's a great idea. I don't know why that didn't work. It's as well. It's just I just I think it was just too too weird for people. But anyway, they they take the piss out of Jack Nicholson in that one because he keeps getting these new rules and he's always trying out for them. You know, see what the other guys on the street think of it. Uh, at one point, he actually gets a job as a Scottish detective, you know, detective based up in um, Glasgow, capital, of, or not capital, we're talking in Scotland. And at one point, and he's saying to like, he's saying, he's saying to um, whoever it is, Dustin Hoffman, who's trying, he's saying, I've just taken on a role as a hard nosed cop from Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, well. that's the voice he's going to do, you know. Let me, let me, I gotta do my jack. I, I, well, yeah, I cause I, yeah, please do. If you could, if you could, here, do your jack and try saying that you're a hard nosed cop from Glasgow. All right, let me do my jack line first and then I'll try that line. I gotta warm up. Okay. <clears throat> well, my wife, Wendy's a confirmed horror film fanatic. <laughs> Was that any good? That's pretty good. Better than I can do for sure. And, uh, so what's the line? Uh, I'm a hard nosed cop from Glasgow. Well, I'm a hard-nosed cop from Glasgow. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, anyway, Connery. Connery, yeah. yeah. So, it's like Scottish accent all the way, and he's mm -hmm. star of Zardoz. Fizardos of McCullough, which is not really how he sounds, but that's if you take it to an extreme Scottish accent, that's what you end up with. Zardoz, I'm going to get you to give listeners your take on that movie in just a second, right. but it's interesting for a number of reasons, not only because Connery was playing something clearly that he had no need to do. I'm not quite sure what appealed to him about the idea, but he went with it anyway. And after the success of Deliverance, it seems to me that director John Berman was basically given carte blanche by the studio to say, okay, that was a big success. You can just do some insane project that you've been yeah. had up your sleeve for a while. Well, the tagline is funny. It's beyond 1984, beyond 2001, and it's beyond love and death. So you get the Nietzschean themes of 2001 that are pretty overt with, uh, you know, the Wagner piece that Kubert played. Uh, and then the idea, you know, Bowman kind of transcending limitations of time and space, which was my analysis of 2001. And here we're trying to go for something even beyond that. And, you know, it's going to have the dystopian themes as the tagline says with 1984, but you know, what everyone remembers is Sean Connery and underwear, but, the odd thing is that there, this movie is really deep. I mean, it's got a lot of symbolism. It's just packed with all these Masonic and esoteric themes. And, uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind in regard to what you said is I, Sean Connery seems to have a penchant for roles related to masonry. Now, I don't know for certain what his, you know, like I said, I don't know his background. I don't know a whole lot about him personally, but you know, he, chose uh, the man who would be king uh, I, I think uh probably because of that masonic theme where he plays this uh con man basically who's uh 
you know, portraying himself as the reincarnation of Alexander the Great. Uh, and this is to fool a whole bunch of these sort of primitive people in Himalayas or somewhere. And, uh, by extension, you know, Michael Caine's there and they're, they're both going to live as kings, you know, in a more, uh, uh, primitive existence and so forth. And this, this, it doesn't work. And then they all, they get basically run out of the, uh, the village. And, uh, but it's very, very Masonic. And, uh, of course, Kipling's story would have all that Masonic imagery and, and thematic elements for a reason, uh, because I'm sure he was, uh, you know, tied into that. And in my view, you know, there, there's a lot of scholarship that's been done on, masonry as kind of the outpost of the british empire that that the the lodges kind of function as these uh networks for you know tr- spying on people and transferring secrets and so anywhere that the empire would extend you would have you know the british lodge system set up so that's kind of what i think uh is in the movie would man who would be king and so you'll see connery a lot of times taking those kinds of roles and and he's very much in a Masonic role here. You know, there's a memorable image from the movie where he finds that magic ring. It's kind of like a, a, a futuristic ring version of the iWatch <laughs> where he can, you know, have uh, access to all, uh, basically the internet is, is what he's accessing here in the movie. But, you know, it displays this image of an eye on his head, you know, this all seeing eye on the, uh, on his third eye. So, yeah, again, this is this movie is replete with all this kind of stuff. But what we have is a future dystopia with these roving bands of tribes we see at the beginning, and and they're it's very bizarre, as you said. They they talk about their guns as if they're phallic. I'm not sure why that part is in there. I, I, I think I may have left it out of the analysis because I didn't really understand what they were getting at. But basically, their their breeding is controlled, and there's this. Uh, a mortal class of persons who flies around in these giant heads uh, and they present themselves as gods. And so Zed, the, the Sean Connery character sort of uh, figures out that this is a scam and he kills one of the quote immortals and then rides back to the compound or the Elysian fields where these immortals live in this very, uh, apathetic, very blase existence where they don't care about anything and everything is, uh, because they, they don't have any pain or sorrow or, um, you know, that they, they have every pleasure at their fingertips. And what happens is that Sean Connery as this savage, you know, kind of invades their Eden, their Edenic state and causes an uproar. He basically fosters a revolution, <laughs> uh, somewhat inadvertently. And, you know, you would think with a typical kind of dystopian film that it would be, oh, you know, they cause the revolution and they overthrow the dystopian rulers and then, you know, the the good guys are in power. But that's not where this film goes. It goes into a very, very bizarre direction. And then what you learn, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it if you haven't seen the movie, is that the, the, the name of the film is based on the fact that he rediscovers books because the elite in this movie have hoarded all the knowledge. They have basically a giant pyramid. That's a big AI system that allows them not just to control their environment in a kind of super smart city. Uh, they can also reincarnate or resurrect. Uh, so they've, they've mastered every possible secret of nature 
and you know it's allowed them to have immortality but they've learned that immortality in their in in this film's presentation at least you know it leaves you empty once you've had all the pleasures there's there's nothing else left for you so zed starts the revolution and what happens is, is that it, it is in a way successful and some of the gods <laughs> kind of join him in the revolution they end up all killing each other so this again the nietzschean theme is very prominent here because I think, you know, Nietzsche would say things like the, the elite, you have these cycles in history. It's a very cyclical presentation in this film, eternal return and so forth. And the reason that the power structures collapse is because they insulate themselves from the rest of the world. You know, that we've all heard this about elites throughout history with, uh, you know, Chinese emperors, uh, couldn't walk on the ground. They would have people carry them around on, on poles and stilts and, uh, uh, they would bind the women's feet because women weren't supposed to walk around. The, the elite, you know, women weren't supposed to walk. All this weird stuff that they come up with. And what happens is when you get really insular like that, and there's all this incest and inbreeding, you know, like amongst the uh, British elite, uh, you end up uh, detached. And, and Nietzsche argues that that detachment from the real world actually ends up being the destruction of the elite, which is an interesting thesis. Uh, and I think that's kind of what's going on here in, in Borman's film because the revolution is successful, uh, but instead of adopting, you know, the technology of immortality, they kind of destroy it. They get rid of it and it, and you, you're left at the end of the film with this kind of Ouroboros scenario of the, you know, the snake eating its own tail because Zed and his wife, are kind of halfway pictured as Adam and Eve. And so you're kind of left with the idea that, oh, maybe this is, you know, just the whole cycle of all of the history of mankind being uh, represented. And, you know, maybe, and in, in maybe what, I'm not saying this is absolutely true, but I'm saying that the film is kind of proposing the thesis of, you know, maybe we think about elites gaining, you know, transhumanist abilities and all this kind of stuff. And then, and then maybe one day it collapses and then it, it all just starts over again and we're right back to Adam and Eve. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. That was a, that was kind of the message of uh, the, the new Battlestar Galactica. If you saw that, if you saw the, the end of the series was that, you know, you're thinking the whole time that this is going on in the future. And then you realize, oh, this is actually starts, the, the end of the series is Adam and Eve, more or less. Uh, so, you know, alternate theories of origins that kind of ties in the Greek mythology, you know, the, the myths of the gods. So that was my take on, on uh, Zardoz. What about you? Well, I mean, I think you pretty much summed up most of my thoughts, but the, the general takeaway from me, elites will become detached from reality and this will be their destruction. And that mirrored other dystopian sci-fi that I'd watched and read. And then I started to see that, you know, in the real world, you know, looking at developments in technology that were actually happening, and then looking back to some of this predictive sci-fi. And I think you mentioned the word transhumanism. I think that's very much where we're headed. And I think for me that Zed in Zardoz uh, is a little bit like sort of John the Savage type character in Brave New World. Yeah, It's kind of... You see in Zardoz the react, the kind of the fascination that they have with Zed, this character, and put it, it's the animal nature of man that they have left behind. That That's they, a good point, right? The, the elite in the tabernacle have, and they're fascinated by his vitality and by his violence. I mean, you know, they're kind of shocked. You know, they, they've become so detached from, as you say, the real world, our, our basic nature, that the idea of like 
killing someone, fucking someone, or yeah, you know, or e- eating something, or you know, taking a shit or whatever. It's all just kind of, ugh, you know. But it's kind of strange for them. It's come around almost full circle, and they're like, oh my god, you know. For me, it's a, it was kind of about balance because it's like you saw the world that the brutals, as they're called in Zardos, live in. It's this post-apocalyptic yeah. kind of wasteland. Yeah, but so Zed's the social class that he's part of is, is a classic uh, middle of a hierarchy type thing, like an enforcer kind of role. Not really yeah. like police, but they kind of sit between the elite and the and the the masses at the bottom of the pyramid. And that we see that very much in our society. So they're almost slightly privileged. Zed's kind of exterminator class. You see the way some of the brutals live, and it's not a lot of fun. But then you see the way the elites live, and you kind of think, well, in some ways. Zed and his cohorts kind of have it good, and for me, things get worse. Things are already bad for the Brutals. Things are get worse for the Elite, and it's actually Zed in this kind yeah. of, like, in his moments of gnosis, kind of coming to understanding. He gains in power throughout the film, and you can see him kind of, like, taking control. So the end, as you say, which is kind of like almost his Adam and Eve type, rip it up and start again thing, um, you can read that any way you want. You can read it as like, oh, here we go again. But for me, it was kind of like, well, it's another chance. We don't, you know, the future isn't written yet. At the end of it, I kind of thought, yay, you know, well done, Zed. That's a good a good point. Uh, yeah, and I, f- I forgot to mention, too, that the, the Zard Oz, of course, Wizard of Oz is what you realize it's based on because he finds that book that was kind of hidden away or forgotten. And, uh, you know, he's kind of figuring out language and, and he realizes that the, the elite basically just mastered technology, you know, gnosis or knowledge. Uh, that's why they're flying around in heads because where's the source of knowledge? It's the head. Uh, that's actually a theme that comes up in a lot of films too, by the way, with, uh, like Baron, Baron von Munchausen. There's that planet mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, Robin Williams, head is just floating around and he has no understanding of the body. And that's, that's kind of what you're getting at that the bodily desires have kind of been discarded because the elite perspective was that the body was the problem and we've got to transcend that. And if we can just transcend that, we'll, we'll be free. We'll be, you know, we won't have those problems anymore, but they've forgotten. And, and as you said, they're mystified by his brutal nature. And then that's why you get these guys who are kind of like that, (laughs) that one guy, he's got the headdress. They look like a sphinx. Which is interesting because so they, they have this kind of Egyptian aesthetic to them where they, they literally look like, you know, the, the Sphinx, uh, statue. Uh, and it harkens back to, you know, Egyptology and that's why their tabernacle, the AI thing is this big uh, pyramid. And the, the irony, as you said, is that. I think part of it is showing that the class warfare doesn't really get you what you want because it's all predicated on the idea of, Oh, if I can rise up in the ranks, if I can overthrow the people above me, if I could just have access to what they've got, then I'll be happy. And then what you find out is that every time you, you know, if you've got a million dollars and then you attain a billion dollars, you basically just inherit a whole other level of problems. (laughs) So you, so you're right in many ways. Zed's uh, middle class, I guess you could say, middle to lower class existence, actually had a lot of uh, positives, and there were a lot of negatives that would have come along with him trying to kind of move into the status of the elite, and it just doesn't work. And 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 I'm not I'm not necessarily trying to say that everything about caste systems or class systems is good. I'm just saying that 
that's kind of an interesting argument you could make from the film is that, you know, do we really get anything better when the revolutions come? And I think if you look at something like the French Revolution, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Just real quick, an addendum, and, and it's on my mind because we covered it in the, the show that I did. We did an episode on Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, which it has its pros and its cons. But one, one of the interesting themes at the end of, of the trilogy was that when Bane tries to initiate his revolution, and you can look at Bane as kind of the uh, anarcho-syndicalist character, the 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 nightmare that arises out of the you know far east you know we don't know we don't understand this guy we and he's got a thing on his face that makes him talk very weird uh, <laughs> and he in, he institutes his revolution and it ends up worse and then you you have this imagery with you know Killian Murphy sitting atop this giant stack of books and he's basically deciding who's loses their head and who doesn't and uh, the, you know it's very Robespierre it looks just like you know Robespierre's committee for public safety sitting there kind of uh, just lopping off heads and, and so that the, the Bane revolution, you know, doesn't do anything positive. It basically ruins everything and, and, and Gotham ends up in a worse state than they were before, which is a curious message for, you know, a, a big blockbuster. And I think you're kind of getting the, a similar idea. I think you could argue here with, with, you know, Zed's revolution I, in a way, I guess it, it's positive uh, because what what does that do? Well, he basically just goes back to kind of a, a you know an, an earthy living in nature kind of existence. You know, he's, he's living in a cave, and they basically just accept death. Yeah, not entirely sure of director John Berman's motives in making the film, but certainly what you could mm-hmm. take away from it—the message we've been talking about—it's interesting that we get so much stuff fed to us now coming down from above, and let's remind people if they um, even if they haven't listened to the first two parts that we did that a lot of what you're talking about in the book is just what the title of the book says you're looking at you know symbolism and these hidden meanings and what agendas might be being furthered by this uh, you look at the connections between the CIA and Hollywood and propaganda so we're talking about messages coming to us here witting unwittingly or deliberately but my my point is we get so many messages these days about elites about transhumanism about the development of technology about the Bill Gates and the Elon Musks of this world and about how this... Point- you reminded me, I just I just want to make one quick point before yeah, I sure, forget, sure. is that they have a breakaway civilization. I forgot about that. Yeah, the, the the elites in the film, the immortals, have this... It's like hidden behind a hologram, you know, this giant sort of invisible force field type thing that, that uh, wards out all the, the savages uh, for their Elysian fields. And then that's interesting because, as you, you mentioned, Bill Gates there made me think of it, and Elon Musk. You know, these are the guys who talk about literally creating a breakaway civilization yeah but all the while a lot of the stuff that's coming down to us is that this is going to be a good thing and we're all going to get to take part as well oh yeah right (laughs) yeah but uh, but strangely in a lot of the films that kind of on one level look like pure propaganda i mean a lot of people have probably seen the relatively recent film elysium the message the message really uh, no matter what the intention of the director is or the writers the message is kind of like that exactly the same with zardos that elites will end up becoming detached from reality and it'll just des- they'll destroy themselves so it's like no matter what the benefits are of all this this techno utopian stuff it kind of ends up in a bad place and that was a common message 
in dystopian sci-fi in the 70s. But even today, mm-hmm. when they when they try and spin something that we're all, oh, yes, I can't wait to dump my body, you know, and I can't wait to, like, my brain is, you know, in a jar of pickling vinegar or whatever, you know, I just want to, you know, I want to live for a thousand years, 10,000 years, why not, you know? Th- these stories, the films, the books, whatever it happens to be, they end up kind of giving the same message, which ultimately is negative. Uh, but yet and all, the, the, the barrage of this stuff continues apace, doesn't it, really? Because... Whether it's TED Talks or whether it's endless propaganda about saving the environment or whatever it happens to be, you know, through all these, uh, you know, like all the latest technology driverless cars, on and on and on. This is incessant, but it it's never seems to, the propaganda never seems to, at a deep level anyway, completely satisfy people or completely do away with their concerns. And I think that, as you saw in Zardoz, there's a visceral animal part of our nature that we never completely lose touch with and i think we do so at our peril because like you and i are not running around you know having to fight with our bare hands every day to defend ourselves we're not having to kill with our bare hands in order to eat mm-hmm. we're not having to secure a mate by mm-hmm. doing by killing and you know clubbing another guy over the head and taking his woman or whatever but there's still a point you can get where you you become detached from any of that stuff and you lose a lot of what it is to be human, for me, my gut instinct is that's something that's really, that must not be allowed to happen. And I know that that, I've gotten into arguments and discussions with people of just saying, oh, you know, why on earth would you want to hold on to this if we could have the following? And maybe I'll be proven wrong, but something in me, the transhumanist agenda taken as a whole, just generically what it basically is about, to me, this must be resisted with every fiber of my being. That's my instinct. Yeah, I mean, the message of the of the film is that you can't really get away from human nature and that you know it, that includes all those faculties and passions that you listed there and more and and propensities and drives and th- there's a kind of dialectical tension at work here that you know are, are we going to see the the body as bad in a kind of Plato, Neoplatonic sense, something that we need to flee from to download our minds into some sort of central AI grid, which I don't think is ever going to happen. I think that's a bunch of nonsense. And a, a uh, that's the, the scam of transhumanism because it's all predicated on uh, naturalistic materialism, you know, the idea that you don't actually have a soul or... Uh-huh a spirit or a psyche or a noose and that it's just basically all just the chemical reactions. And so you'll actually see the, the transhumanists, like you mentioned the Ted talks. And if you watch any of these big billionaires that are into transhumanism and some of them are actually transgenders and they try to, I'm not joking. They try to create these bots that they think are copies of their lovers. I forget the name of this one. It's like, there's a, there's like a black woman bot that this transgender billionaire has tried to create and and the argument is that oh it actually is my black woman lover because it has her voice and she has recorded a lot of her life and memories and so therefore it's her uh and that's again all based on this ridiculous naturalistic presupposition that see that's that you're just the chemical reactions that you know occur in your brain there's nothing more and so i guess by extension if that's the case then you know, the, the if you're playing a YouTube video of me talking about Bill Cosby, then that's the same as me, yeah. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is really stupid. But, I mean, that's literally what they try to push. And I've seen TED Talk people try to push that same thing 
when I've got into heated discussions with people about this, I'm talking about techno-utopians eagerly, quite often without actually any expert knowledge in the area. But, you know, they've read a lot of articles, watched a lot of TED Talks. Uh, they're passionate about that some of these tram- transhumanist ideas should come to pass. They think it'd be a good thing. Uh, initially, more importantly, they think it can be done. It's just a matter of time. Everything's just a matter of time. Look how far we've come, they say, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll say to them, okay, you know, we're, we're drawing to the end of our discussion or actually I'm just bored now, so I'm going to end it. But I'll say something like, okay, 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 let's just cut to the chase here. Make a bet with me. Now, if we're going to make a meaningful bet, we've got to have a sort of a time frame and we've got to have something easily measurable. If it's like a horse race, you bet on the horse. Either the horse wins the race or it doesn't. If it's a photo finish, they sort it out. That's fine. But they make a decision. So I'll say something like, let's choose one of these developments you're talking about. And Elon Musk saying that by, by 2030, it will be dark. Ray Kurzweil has said by 2030, this will happen. Elon Musk says, yeah, that's doable, blah, blah. Set a date with me. Now, we're going to have to wait a few years. Set a date with me and you tell me the amount. And you're going to say this could be done and this will happen. Tell me how much money you want to stake and I'll go for it. Because it's a question, you, the question you have to ask yourself if you're betting on this is how much c- can I afford to lose? Because that's how confident I am. And do you know what? Maybe people have just thought I wasn't serious. People get quite defensive. They get quite angry. And they will not even consider entering into a bet with me. I've said we can do a contract if you want. We can get this witness. We can make this legal. We make it enforceable, a law. And then when that doesn't work, I say, okay, let's just take it down a notch. Let's say something that you're convinced is going to be happening in the next five years. And let's have a, an amount of money that's substantial, but it's not going to ruin us 5,000, 10,000 well, bucks, whatever, you know. And they will not go for it. And they get really angry if I try and say, give me something, give me this, because it's measurable, it's actionable. And if you're so confident, what's the problem? Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think we have to be a Luddite or a total transhumanist. That's a false dichotomy. I think if you look at the last few Bilderberg meetings and, you know, the heads of Google and, People from Apple and, and what they're talking about is coming. They they really want to push the the body mod and modifications and all that kind of stuff uh, in terms of the tech realm. And you know Regina Dugan, who was formerly at DARPA, now at Google, was at Bilderberg last year, I think, talking about this. And and uh, you know the iWatch is kind of a step in that direction. Now I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with an iWatch. Obviously, it's that would be stupid. But what I'm saying is that they're going to, I think, to try to find ways to integrate this into the actual body of the human. And that is the, the pr- predictive programming that we've been seeing for so long, all the way back to shit, all the way back to probably Logan's run. I mean, you, you know, there's that scene where he kind of is sitting in that chair and they're doing some kind of like mind control thing on him. And then, you know, you think about the matrix and jacking in and I just saw ghost in the shell recently. And that has the same theme. Actually that came out before the matrix and it's, cartoon form uh and that's all based on all the exact same stuff and I, I was kind of blown away actually at the the level of transhumanism that was in ghost in the shell um wasn't as successful i don't think as they they hoped it would be but when you watch that movie and again it's a mediocre movie but <laughs> you know, scarlett johansson really has this penchant i guess for these transhumanist movies like lucy uh where she's you know turned into some sort of cyborg goddess of some kind but it's a scam because if you here's a funny thing even ray kurzweil i heard him do a talk where he was saying uh, actually a lot of people who think about transhumanism or these like the idea of downloading your mind to a computer 
he's like, that might happen one day millennia away. But he's like, if you think about it, this was a, I couldn't believe he said this. He said, the human body is actually a very uh, proficient machine. And he said, you know, it actually, if we were to try to, to really initiate transhumanism, He's like, it's not going to be where you, you know, put your brain into some hard drive. It's more like, how can we enhance the existing system or create a copy of the existing system? And that kind of, I was like, oh, wow. So what, what's ironic here is that the idea, I'm not joking about this. You, you can, this is a theory I have. I think that a lot of the transhumanist elite, that they actually kind of want to mimic Christianity, believe it or not. You say, well, that's crazy. They hate Christianity. They think it's a joke. Well, I, I think on the surface they do. But when you see Ray Kurzweil say stuff like that, like, oh, actually the human body is a really good machine for what, uh, it, for what it does. And maybe we should actually construct some kind of machine like that. And then you, and then you watch Avengers Age of Ultron and, uh, the Paul Bettany character. I, I don't remember what that, I'm not a big superhero person now that I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the all the all the guys in America are like still into this, you know comic book shit when they're like forty. It's kind of ridiculous. But that Paul Bettany character is some kind of uh, I forget his name, like the mystery. I think is his name or something stupid like that. But he is uh, a like a, a resurrected kind of body. It's like a he's a he's the he is the transhumanist character in the film, and he's like. You know, he's, he's got a body that has all these capabilities beyond, you know, whatever the former human body had or whatever. And that's actually what Ray Kurzweil says. He's like, he's like, yeah, we need to just fix the existing system and turn in it into something. He's like, because look, if you think about it, you know, the human mind is constructed such that it, it, it has a focus on one thing at one time. Like, you know, if you're looking at, I'm looking at a mad magazine cover right now in my, in my living room. Like, I'm not looking at the backyard at the same time. And he's making the argument that you can only really focus on one thing at one time. He's like, so there's not really a way for the human person, simply because it is a a finite subject, to have, like, ten different vantage points. You know, we're not going to have a bug eye (laughs) that, that allows us to see, you know, like a fly does, like, like uh, Jeff Goldblum in the fly or something where he can see, you know, 20 different or a thousand, however many eyes bugs have, you know, a thousand different vantage points or whatever. Uh, he's like, that's, that's very extremely complex and it would be very difficult to, you know, rewire the, the human brain to try to, uh, incorporate something even as simple as, uh, you know, the, the, the different vantage points that a bug has you know, something like that. So, and when you think about that and you think, oh, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, if there was going to be some kind of transhumanism, that, that they're probably going to try to shoot for something along the lines of a mimicked version of Christianity, believe it or not, where you have a resurrection. And if, you know, if you read the Gospel of John, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is, I could see how they would look at it this way. Like, oh, you know, you see Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John and he he's in his same body, but it's resurrected. It's it's not bound by time and space. It's not mortal. Uh, it has all these properties and characteristics that it's able to do things that it wasn't doing before the resurrection. 
Uh, now, obviously, again, I'm not saying they believe in Christianity. I just wonder if they don't have like a kind of a a covert Gnostic alteration of, hey, why don't we take the mythology of Christianity and maybe turn it into, uh, you know, like a, a technological version and, you know, something like out of Avengers Age of Ultron. I mean, that's kind of wacky. I'm out there speculating, but. You mentioned Logan's run there, and we're going to turn to talk about that. But just before I move on there, you also mentioned Luddites earlier on and, and how that's a false dichotomy between being a Luddite and being some kind of techno-utopian transhumanist. And this is a theme that comes up some dystopian sci-fi. The transhumanists run the risk of a backlash. A backlash that actually, superficially, the likes of you and I might say, well, you know, saw that coming, you had that coming, you deserve it. But these things quite often go too far, don't they? They overshoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One quick point that reminded me too, I meant to say earlier, was these are the people who are total lying psychopaths. I mean, look at all of the false flags, look at all of the scams, psyops that they do constantly. How on earth do you think that they're going to tell you the truth when it comes to techno-utopianism? They're, they're lying. Yeah, exactly. And, and my, my worry is not that I worry very much, but my concern, I guess, would be that, you know, we could get into a situation at some point down the line where and we've seen this locally but you know on a more global scale this would be some kind of backlash that actually will everybody will suffer from no matter what their point of view and you and i will might be sitting if we live that long observing this and going oh man this is not good you know it could have negative effects for us simply because it's a a, a reaction that turns into an overreaction i guess to the imposition of this technocratic so-called utopia on the rest of us i'm thinking one of the most striking stories in amongst the driverless cars kind of crashing themselves was people, I think it was in San Francisco. I don't know if there's one incident. I think there's probably multiple incidents, but people on the streets wearing Google Glass being attacked because they were wearing Google Glass. The attackers, I don't remember. I didn't read any stories in detail, but there was some kind of motivation. These were not random attacks. And I suspect... Yes, I do remember that. That's a good point. I think there's something probably quite visceral in that you may even talk to some of the people who undertook these attacks and they might not even really necessarily be able to articulate a very clear reason why they did what they did. I mean, I am, you know, grasping at straws here. No, no, no. Uh, Do you remember Surrogates, the the Bruce Willis movie? I, I haven't seen it, but I, I know what it's about, yeah. Yeah, well, th- there's a, that very thing, what you're talking about, because it's, it's a near future thing and you basically, the plot is that you live in this little where you spend your days in this kind of um, pod or, or something where, where you're just kind of laying in the pod and your surrogate, which is like this copy version of you, you know, goes out and does its daily activities, uh, which is an interesting idea. But um, in the movie, there's, the, there's a giant backlash of protests and activists and people who uh, are, are opposing transhumanism. Uh, that, that's literally what's going on in the movie. So you you, you may be, uh, I think you're onto something there that, yeah, we, we might have a kind of societal breakdown where where the, uh, you know, people try to initiate a Butlerian jihad like in the uh, Dune novels. Yeah, and funny enough, I was suddenly reminded of a, a line popped into my head. They made themselves God and now God has forsaken us. And I thought, that's John Burman. And then I realized it's actually an, Exc- yeah. it's actually an Excalibur. Um, oh, interesting. And good, it's good, the, eye, good eye there. 
Yeah, it's, it's the peasants, basically. Not not using that as a derogatory term, you know, but it's the people who live on cabbage soup and work the land. Uh, it's a tough existence for them in the Dark Ages. And they're lashing out against the Grail Knights, who they've seen have become aloof and detached from reality. And they're an elite living up there in Camelot and their shiny armour and their round table and their shiny swords. And they're living in their own little, you know... Metal. I, I, metal and Metal and tech. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they've got, that's yes, what, that, they've got they've got high tech compared to the rest of them. And I just remember one of the as that they undergo their downfall before their ultimate recovery. That's one of the peasants lashes out. It's I think it's at um, at Lancelot just yeah. talking about the Grail Knights that they made themselves God and now God has forsaken this society. The whole world for them has just got a whole lot darker as a result of what they see as the mishandling, as the uh, you know the, the evil science of the Grail Knights. Well, just look at these social justice warrior slugs that can't do anything, which is like the younger generations. I mean, when I compared to my my dad and granddad, I can't do any of the shit they could do. You know, like they could, uh, my dad could like build a car from scratch. He did that one time, and he's built houses and all kinds of you know manly endeavors. Uh, and I I turned out more of a bookish dude, um, which is not necessarily bad per se, but you know I I don't have a lot of those skills that that. Uh, my dad and granddad had and it's even worse you know as you get down to the millennials who uh, are basically just i think engineered to be obsessed with the tech stuff and they're they're the ones that are going to be you know they're being raised by ipads you know little kids now are being raised by ipads and so i think they're going to be very primed for the acceptance of whatever the next phases of bodily modification and stuff like that and you mentioned the driverless cars i don't mean to change subject but it just reminded me I couldn't believe I watched that stupid uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, uh, Sixth Day, I think, not too long ago. And that came out in 2000, and it begins with Google driverless cars. Yeah, I mean, you've got a driverless car in Total Recall, don't you? It's got a little guy in the front who kind of talks to you, but that's not a... That's a good point, yeah. Your comment there about emasculation and younger generations in tech, you've actually read my mind oddly enough, you know, <laughs> at a time when apparently we can't do that yet. That's what I was going to turn to. Oh, you're just assuming that I haven't been modified to read minds. I am assuming that, you know, silly me. Yeah, You're just assuming that I'm not a DARPA black op project. Yeah, actually send me your bank details. I owe you 10,000 bucks. Sorry <laughs> about that. I'll, uh, I'll get that transferred over immediately. But um, that's a theme that I really want to turn to. But we did say we get to Logan's run. And this is replete with um, motifs and the sort of themes we've been talking about. And then you actually deal with it in your book um, section, Our Technocratic Dystopia Unveiled. Now, Logan's Run's quite well-known film is from 1976. And as we've mentioned yeah. before, this was really the sort of uh, halcyon days of dystopian mm-hmm. sci-fi in many ways. We had Rollerball, which we talked about in a previous mm-hmm. installment, Soylent Green, THX 1138, which is George Lucas' first film developed from a project he first did when he was a film student, a fairly uh, a lesser known film starring Oliver Reed called ZPG or Zero Population Growth. Zero Population, yeah. I've yeah seen exactly. That. And it, Logan's run set in the 23rd century uh, where pleasure rules in a synthetic society. That was the byline. And mm-hmm. it's got a lot in common, actually, uh, the later film called The Island with Ewan McGregor uh, yes. was very similar in many ways. So now, it, Logan's run was a, a feast for you to get your teeth into, really, in writing. Not least the population control, which I suppose is a central theme, but it's a smart city as well, isn't it? So, um, exactly. just, yeah, just, just cherry pick a few of your favorite aspects of Logan's run then and just, uh, set those out. 
Well, you know what's weird about a lot of the dystopian stories is that it's almost like they all have uh, uh, two or three elements that are likely to be true that the other stories don't have. <laughs> so what you don't have in uh, maybe... Well, no, I guess you could argue that you do have population control in Zardoz, but you know, at times you'll see things in in some of these kinds of stories that you don't see in others. But yeah, the the this has a very strong euthanasia theme, right? So everybody has this very easy existence in the big plastic AI smart city, and you are deleted you know you, you what's and what's weird about it is that once again it's a kind of religious manipulation like we saw in zardoz right which was this faux religion that's kind of the noble lie of plato that's foisted upon the the tech utopia and then when you reach a certain age of what was it 30 or 33 you you uh you're incinerated <laughs> but they've turned it into this happy a floating ritual where you kind of dance around and float away and <laughs> you float into the furnace or something and uh which is funny because that yeah again this is very platonic it's very much the the idea that you know plato said oh well the 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 ideal republic which all the utopias are all based on the ideal republic of plato uh, well they've got to have the noble lie fake religion because you know you're never going to have all of the society being philosopher kings and you know the philosopher king understands that you men have to be governed and you got to have the rigid hierarchy and you got to have the <clears throat> you got to lie to the masses because you know they're just too stupid and you got to keep them their population under control like like the wildlife authority you know controls the deer population here in Tennessee for example because there'll be too many of them uh and you know, so you have all those Malthusian uh, eugenics themes, and then what happens is you got the the Promethean character of Logan Five, who the Michael York character who fi finally figures out that not everything in his Edenic existence is what it appears to be, and that that's of course always one of the great themes of the dystopian stories, and I think why they resonate so well with all of us living in the age that we live in now, especially with the awareness of the new world order and all that, we, we realize that, you know, we have not been told what is true. We've been told all this baloney and we live in this synthetic society. And, and, you know, as the great philosopher Jean Baudrillard predicted in his book, Simulacra and Simulation, we're almost entering into a point where it's beyond synthetic. It's like a synthetic version of the synthetic. You know, I was, I was amazed, for example, when I watched the last Jurassic Park reboot, and there was so many, I did analysis of that, and one of the things that stood out that was very bizarre was that, that you have people in a synthetic environment watching synthetic people, or synthetic uh, uh, dinosaurs, in a control, like a large part of that movie is in the control room, of Jurassic Park and the the people are watching synthetic images on their screens of synthetic things in this synthetic park and then it gets even more meta because we're in the movie theater watching <clears throat> all of this syntheticness <laughs> now I may have mentioned that before but that just always blows my mind when when this synthetic topic comes up and I think about how like these gamers right like the, these very popular YouTube channels of gamers 
who sit there. People are watching people play a video game, and it just that just blows my mind. And then you know there are some channels where it's like people watching people watching a video game. Going, I mean, it's, it's just like madness. But so we're getting into these kind of infinite removals, you know, uh, of meta uh, synthetic. Uh, dystopia here in our reality that I don't even think these people could have could have come up with. But and again, all of that's kind of hinted at here in, in Logan's Run. Um, another interesting element is governing the people in the dystopia through their base desires. Right, hedonism rules. You have uh, like these. You, you basically go home and you tell the computer what you want, and the computer produces the like a holodeck on Star Trek or something like that. Like you get the synthetic babe or whatever. Um, and like you said, yeah, it, it's very much like the Island. I think, I think Michael Bay and all, <laughs> he kind of, uh, blended a whole bunch of, uh, the dystopias together. Uh, they're not, I mean, I, I actually think the Island is a decent movie. If you go back and watch it, it's not as bad as you would think coming from Michael Bay, but, but yeah, it is kind of like just a cut and paste of all the dystopias. Um, so there's all this, you, you, I guess we should mention other, the, you know, the symbolism too of like the lotus. So there's this giant lotus crystal, which is this, you know, Buddhist Hindu imagery. And in those traditions, interestingly, that it references the heart and the passion. So the, the lotus is a reference to the, the flower of life, which if we think about like sacred geometry and Pythagoreanism and platonic mysticism, the flower of life signifies the ecosphere, the biosphere as a whole. And this gets into the platonic solids and how in Pythagoreanism, everything is kind of built upon itself uh, up into, you know, second, third, fourth dimension reality. And, um, the reason I say that is that again, we're back to Platonism and, and that's a, I think direct, conscious referencing of all these platonic ideas and you say well platonism isn't buddhism actually there's a lot of uh, similarities between uh, ancient hindu ideas and buddhist ideas and platonism and people have written many books on that i cite one of those books in my analysis and really what we're just talking about is sacred geometry here and that is mastering the secrets of sacred geometry this is what plato talks about in the republic that's how you construct the utopia literally uh, now, I'm not saying it's a real utopia. I'm just saying that that's how it's viewed in the mystic texts, is that you master these things. You know, Plato says that the philosopher king has to go off for, like, 20 years and study math. Like, you go for 20 years and you study geometry and math, master all that, and then you got to come back and master the art of ruling men. And that's the true philosopher king, right? So it's not just, you know, meditating on a mountain, uh, for Plato, it's a little more uh, pragmatic. You got to actually come back and use that gnosis and wisdom that you supposedly have obtained to rule the the city state, and that's everything that we're seeing <laughs> here in uh, Logan's Run. And uh, there's also Crowleyan elements too. I think you got this kind of new aeon um, where d death has been accepted as this kind of necessary part of existence and of the regime. The regime just has to to kill people, supposedly because, you know, we got to keep balance in the population for the ecosphere and all this kind of stuff in, inside the, the 
the Bubble Dome City, which, by the way, is very Disney. You know, you look at the kind of silly little models and artwork that was used for the movie, uh, and it looks almost exactly like Epcot. <laughs> and you say, well, what's the connection there? And we may have mentioned this on the first talk, I can't remember, but it's come up a few times. Uh, the Pentagon was directly involved with big corporations like the Siemens Corporation uh, in designing Epcot, and it's, it was called the City of Tomorrow. So believe it or not, Epcot Center and Disney, I'm not joking, this is 100% true, that was predictive programming, planning, uh, pro- conditioning people to accept the coming smart cities. They knew back then there would be smart cities, there would be all of this reorganization you know, under the kind of Agenda 21 model of cities and a new cities initiative and all this kind of stuff. Uh, target cities, I'm not joking about that, by the way. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that before, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's all real. Uh, the Clinton Initiative is very uh, closely connected to the the Target Cities Initiative. You can't make this stuff up. I'm not joking. Well, I mean, you look at the look at the Zeitgeist movement specifically. Oh, yeah, it's a great example. Uh, yeah, I mean, you look at their city drawings and a lot of their a lot of their plans. You know, which are kind of like the sort of thing that you see an artist's impression when there's a new development going up somewhere, and but it's not ready yet. So rather than put the blueprints up, which is really boring and nobody can understand them, uh, an artist does an impression of what the finished building or development will look like. Up it goes. So these are in that sort of style. Zeitgeist's movements, their kind of vision of future cities. And what's yep. what's that? That just looks like something of a set from Logan's Run. Exactly. Or, or any of these other dystopian sci-fi. Or, you know, I look, remember looking at um, re-watching uh, Clockwork Orange. And just going, oh, it's the zeitgeist streets and uh, plazas yep. and stuff, except that, oh, here we have, here we have so-called real life. Here we have the, you know, the ugliness of the animal kicking its jackboot into all of this. What, where does this kind of resolution come? It's when some of the characters reconnect with nature, you know, mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. of the domed city. That's very mm-hmm. much a theme in THX one one three eight. Oh yeah, they finally quite, quite. get finally get above ground and reconnect with nature. Oh, this is that's that's great. That's a, this is the allegory of the cave theme that is yeah, yeah. constant in dystopian stories. So THX total allegory of the cave where they emerge and they see the sun. Right, they've never seen a sunset mm-hmm. or sunrise, whatever it is. Uh, you know, with the, the James Con- or uh, uh, Robert Duvall character comes out and he sees the sun, and then uh, there's another movie that's actually a pretty good kids movie, believe it or not, with Sorcerer Ronan and Bill Murray called City of Ember, and it's a, a, a very well done dystopian movie for for kids, and in that film they're all underground. It's a future dystopia, and you know that. I don't think I'm spoiling it for anybody by saying that, you know, the end of the film is that the whole civilization was based on a lie. And uh, Sorcha Ronan and whoever the male lead guy was, they exit the city. Uh, and what the irony in that one was that the, uh, you know, Bill Murray plays a, a great, uh, uh, sort of dissolute, uh, corrupted president of, of the, of the civilization or whatever he is. The mayor, that's what he is. He's the mayor. Uh, and, and he doesn't even remember the real story. So he actually believes the bullshit. And that's the, the irony of, of sometimes of the dystopias is that, you know, maybe in the earliest days in, in these fictional presentations, we have the idea that, you know, the leaders uh, thought, oh, it's going to be for the best if we create a giant lie for the civilization. And then like 500 years later, they've forgotten that. <laughs> so they actually believe that, 
you know, oh, you can't step outside the dome city because the air is toxic. You know, there's, there's nuke, nuke dust and, uh, radiation and which is all made up. And, you know, that, that was a great theme in, uh, City of Ember. So if you haven't seen that, I actually recommend it. It's a pretty good film. Oh, but really- it has that. Sorry, I was cut, ha- I cut across you there. I didn't mean to do that, but uh, that's okay. They, they they have that. It has that platonic allegory, the cave theme, uh, which again, it's always present in these dystopian stories and consciously. I mean, that, again, that just proves my thesis that you know it's all really goes back to you know, Pledge of Public. Well, there's another book, a novel that I read. I don't think it's ever been turned into a movie. It's called The Penultimate Truth. And it might be a Philip K. Dick book. I just can't remember. But it's exactly the same theme. I think you'd enjoy it. It's about you can't go above ground. It's poisoned. But it's not. But, of course, that goes right back to the machine stops, doesn't it, E.M. Forster? Uh, let's not forget Snowpiercer. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because, the, the, you know, they can't go outside the train. But that was all a lie. Exactly. Uh, but the, the, the whole all this kind of reconnecting with nature, but also... The animal nature of man, I use the term advisedly in, in this, you know, emancipate, emancipated age, kind of sticking its oar in, you know, jutting phallically, kind of thrusting into the situation and kind of ruining everything for the technocrats. I mean, that's, you see that in a way in Blade Runner, don't you? A classic dystopian film, because it, not necessarily in a good way, but you've got, I mean, the central characters like a heavy drinker to the point of being an alcoholic. Everything's really grimy. The weather sucks. There's so many things about the future in that film that kind of, kind of where you thought, yeah, this was all really shiny and brilliant, wasn't it, when it was kind of new? And now it's all just kind of gone the way all tech does. It kind of rusts and seizes up. It has, mm. it has scum on it. And there's actually a, a, I'm not a huge, huge fan of Anne Rand, but uh, she actually has a pretty good short story with that same theme too. Um, Anthem, Anthem is a good Anne Rand short story with that same theme too. Well, just a thought that suddenly occurred to me just based on something you said a minute ago about Philosopher Kings, and this is just a general reflection, but it kind of is a continuation in a thought process of, you know, some of the, some of the things we've discussed, you know, the, the themes of the, um, you know, technology for, versus the primitive and, and this kind of spectrum between the two. And isn't it interesting what a difference there is, particularly brought out in movies, what a difference there is in leadership that arises from so-called from the bottom and that which is generally imposed from the top. That's a, that's a thing that comes up in a lot of movies. And you see that, I mean, the first one that came to mind was uh, Gladiator. Let's use an example that a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Russell Crowe's character Maximus, a very strong, capable, smart uh, leader, as he t- it turns out to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, But he's come up from the ranks and so he's a bit like a sergeant in the army in a way, do you know what I mean? Or uh, the guy that the men look up to because he's done what they've done. Yeah, he actually has, you know, courage and virtue. And then, you know, Commodus is this totally degenerate, uh, effete, you know, sicko. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what I, I that the thought first occurred to me when we were talking about Sean Connery playing Zed and Zardos, you know, at the role that he has and how... He's, you know, yes, he, he's taken on the role of a, an exterminator, but it doesn't, you know, you kind of, he's uh, a man of character, a few words in the, in that movie, but you kind of have a, you can kind of respect him, if you see what I mean, whereas you've just got nothing but contempt for these poor wretches, contempt and pity. And in the army, I suppose you get the guys, I don't know what it's like in the US army, but in the British army, you get the guys that go to Sandringham or wherever it is, you know, to officer school and, the, you know, they've never been in the rank and file, never been in the infantry. 
and uh, their combat experience may be very limited. A bit like the guy in Aliens. Do you remember the guy, the the military guy who's like parachuted in? Uh, to yes, the, that's the a great point. Yeah, and then you know the Hudson and Hicks and all those guys are seasoned, and and they can't stand that guy being over over them because he he has had he has no experience. And when does that guy, the characters again, is can't remember his name as such, but you've got that slimy cretin from the company who obviously gets stamped out like the cockroach that he is. Burke. Burke, yeah. Burke, yeah. But when the military guy who has been parachuted in to like take control, so to speak, when does he begin, when do we begin to kind of see something coming through that looks like courage? It's when he's up against it. and But it shows that he kind of has that within him when he sacrifices himself um, with you know that the the the, yeah, the girl the the, fe- the female soldier you know and he's kind of only then only in that only in that human situation only in, when he's forced to actually act does he find really some kind of courage whereas Burke is just you know as a slime ball from beginning to end so uh, I, you know Ripley Ripley I you know I I really thought better of you I thought better for you Ripley you know I we could be wealthy here Ripley. Well, you're, you're, I, don't, I don't do a great Paul Reiser, but he has that very, you know, kind of New York Jewish accent. That's uh, yeah, he's got he's got a very punchable head. I will say that. Yeah, right. But uh, yeah, you're not gonna sleaze your way out of this one, Burke. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna nail you to the wall. <laughs> Game over, man. Game over. Oh, he died recently, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. The, yeah, the actor. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I want to turn to, I mentioned this uh, just earlier, is this idea of emasculation and kind of like where we're headed in terms of technology in the real world and of course a lot of what we're talking about spills over into this in terms of propaganda and predictive programming you know sometimes uh and i'm reading quite a lot about this at the minute you know the effect that this technology is having on younger people um, but also older generation as well i mean people of our age people who are old enough to be our parents you know maybe the people who are our parents and it's uh you know the the digital natives versus digital Emigrants, I think the word is, you know, that mm. you, you and I are probably to some extent digital immigrants because we probably have always known personal computers, but we haven't always known smartphones and the mm-hmm. internet and everything else. Digital natives being those kids or young people that have been born into this. And we're seeing some negative effects here. Mm. And yet we're not here to discuss the positives, okay? We're not here to deny some of the positives. You and I are talking with technology. We're talking over the internet. It's amazing technology. I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to be without it, even though I think we might be someday, maybe in a couple of hundred years time. But you see so much apathy and so much vitality being drained away from a certain type of person who get enmeshed in technology and obsessed with it and they live through it to the point where sometimes they're, never mind their minds atrophying, sometimes their bodies waste away. I don't know if you've read anything about that. In particular, there's a class of a uh, young person in Japan. There's a name for them that I can't quite remember. Who basically live with their parents and spend all their time in one room. Hmm. And I've read a story recently about a number of kids who have died as a result of going on three, four, five day gaming marathons during which yes. they did not eat and did not sleep. And this passion, this sense of purpose, a drive, fire, desire—these things that that seem to and historically have driven us on as a species, good and ill, but anything that we've achieved that you can look back and say, wow, it's been that. I'm also reading a lot of articles in general about, well, the first ones I read were along the lines of what's happening to men 
I, you know, where are they? You know, she's a young woman just sort of saying, oh, they've got these like gaming slack jawed, <laughs> to coin a phrase, pencil necked slugs. Is this the next generation of these are future husbands and fathers? But then I also start to read these sorts of things now about young women, you know, and, and why would the effects really be any different? They just affect, you know, the different genders somewhat differently for, because the genders are different, but it's the same basic phenomenon. Well, um, yeah, here in the US, like if you scroll through, like the dating websites, if somebody's single, uh, you know, you're looking through these profiles and what you tend to see, you can learn a lot from that, by the way, of, of the culture. Uh, you'll see all of these girls now that are obsessed with weightlifting. I'm not joking. This is a, a huge trend <laughs> and not just being fit, but or toned, which, you know, that makes that's fine with me, but actually wanting to get buff, uh, literally like really stout buff. You know, you've got girls going into, UFC fighting, uh, you know, you've got women. The argument is now they need to be in special forces and on the front lines. And simultaneously for the men, the programming is, like you said, enter into the, what Max Kaiser called a long time ago, the virtual gulag. Uh, you know, the synthetic video game realm. So it's this total reversal of, the norms and it's absolutely by design and it's uh i don't think we have to look a whole lot further than just the uh depopulation i mean the whole goal of all that is just i mean there's probably other experiments too you know more specific localized experiments of you know what what can we do with uh you know what happens to somebody who plays video games uh you know for five days straight what's the effects of i'm sure the government's done experiments of that of that nature but overall, the plan is really just to mess people up so they don't reproduce. I think that's, I think it's pretty, that pretty, pretty simple in that regard. And, you know, we've mentioned many times Aldous Huxley and, uh, what's in Brave New World, but you know, Bertrand Russell says this very clearly too in the scientific outlook and impact of science on society that, that the, the goal would be to really just mess people up. Um, I mean, it's just pretty, pretty much that simple. Yeah, I did an interview recently with a psychologist who deals with a lot of young people who are having problem relationships with uh, technology. You know, it's, they're mm -hmm. usually referred by their parents because it's destroying their lives. And in some cases, it turns out that the parents are actually falling down into that trap as well. And it makes the whole situation worse. But she related an interesting little anecdote to me. Father of a child who'd been you know, referred to her and the father was talking to her just when the kid wasn't around and it was in person or on the phone or something. And he was saying, yeah, they, you know, I remember they, they kind of had a, a bit of a, a little bit of a party over at the house. Not not kids old enough to be smoking and drinking and stuff. You know, they were just doing what slightly younger kids. But they were they were teenage kids, being the point. You know that they were um, they passed puberty. And he said, "Oh, so I just went down to the basement. You know, because we have it turned into a kind of a den. And mm. you know, there was the guys and the girls. You know, my, my son and all his friends and some some girlfriends. I, you know, female friends, not necessarily girlfriends as in dating or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And he said there were, there were sort of throw cushions and stuff on the floor and they were all kind of like lying there and kind of just chatting and doing stuff. And there was something that were kind of draped over each other. And he was kind of, you know, just looking on, oh, okay, you know, there, there's my son with a girl draped over him. And there's one of the other lads and this kind of girl lying with him. So, you know, they're not doing anything, not doing any harm, but there they are, you know, it's just blah, blah, blah. And he thought, and he said to this psychologist, he said, Man, I couldn't have done that without getting aroused when I was that age. <laughs> but he, he said they were all just lying there, like exactly like the immortals in Zardals. You know, <laughs> he, he, that's my free is not his, but you know, <laughs> that's what it was. 
that's funny. Yeah, the uh, well, I think there's totally a drop in testosterone, and the sperm counts have dropped, and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff like that. That's you know appears to be confirmed, and I don't doubt it in ma- even mainstream news. So, yeah, I think it's all by design. You look at uh, Eco Science by John P. Holder and the quote science czar that Obama appointed. He wrote back in the late 70s that big fat book with paul ehrlich another malthusian uh global warming guy that you know that the that you could do all this through you know chemicals in the environment chemicals in the water you know inoculations vaccines all of that and uh you know again this is just it's just the re- restating of what bertrand russell said so many years ago 100 years ago and i mean i'm not trying to be blasé it's just it's really is that simple. You know, we can do all the analysis and, and, and try to plumb the depths of all this stuff, but uh, that's really the big plan, in my view. And that thing that you mentioned quite early on about superheroes, when you, when you know, your comment was just, I'm not really a big superhero movie guy, you know, I don't necessarily know a lot about it, blah, blah, blah. And then you're, you know, about mentioning about guys in their 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever, just being like really into the superhero thing. But not no, no. This is this is a huge thing, man. It's yeah, it's yeah. hard. To I mean, have you been to? I'm not quizzing you. I'm just wondering. Have you been to the U.S.? Have you seen like there there are the? I mean, I'm sure this is true of the Western world and probably other areas as well, like Japan or something, especially. But there are these giant conventions, and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger every year, and they pop up in every city. And it's like not just. I mean, when I was a kid, there used to be comic book conventions at maybe a few cities. And, I, and the, the San Diego Comic-Con is very famous. I went to that when I was a kid. No, it was neat, you know, Spider-Man, Batman. Uh, but now it has become this gigantic industry. And the big, I'm not joking, look this up. The A-listers can even make more money by convention appearances than they do in their films. Uh, Chris Evans, the guy who's Captain America, he can make more at one convention than he does, you know, in the whole, I'm not joking, look that up, it's crazy. Uh, and so it, it, it's just this whole other realm of the cosplay uh, theme that's that's kind of taking on a new life of its own. And I'm, I've been speculating with some of my friends that I think what they might even do in the future, I'm not joking, but, but so we think about, oh, it's going to be Logan's run, there's going to be, you know, like a, a a big plastic city, smart city. No, no, no. Here's what I think they're going to do. I think they will actually create, like, imagine a whole state or a whole region that is Avatar world. Imagine a whole land that is Harry Potter land. And you can literally go immerse yourself in that world. Now, it'll be totally a psyop, totally mind control. By the way, this is, don't steal this. This is my idea for a, a, a sci-fi <laughs> dystopia. <laughs> of course, uh, you know, you can't, if you write a dystopian story that way, you, you can't use Avatar or anything like that. You get sued. But, um, I think that, I think that's what they're going to do. And Disney was the test bed for this. Um, so I don't think it'll totally be all be virtual. I think you'll have, I mean, I think we're a long way away from people totally living inside the matrix, but you know, we're going to continue to see these big, um, DARPA Pentagon style projects where they create, you know, entire, uh, areas. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm amazed, for example, at Disney in, in down in Florida, <clears throat> which I've been a few times in my life, but the last time I went was about five years ago. And, 
so when I was a kid, you would go to Disneyland and there would be the Magic Kingdom, which was kind of the central theme park, and then they added Epcot, or there was Epcot and Magic Kingdom. That was kind of it. Maybe a, a few beaches and, and resorts or something. Now, when you go, there are whole worlds. Like you go to Harry Potter World. You go to, uh, you know, they're, they're opening Avatar World now. So entire parks are expanding based on Avatar, Harry Potter. It just kind of blew me away. I was like, I cannot believe this. This is insane. <laughs> so it's almost like Vegas, you know, what Vegas is for adults is going to, I think it's going to merge into something like Disney World. And the dystopia that we're going to see is going to be something just mind boggling like that. <laughs> but I've, I've got nothing against the superhero concept. I used to read, not very much, but I used to read Marvel annuals uh, when I was a mm-hmm. kid. But I kind of preferred some of the lesser-known superheroes. Like there was one guy that was made of stone, and there was another guy that was, he was like Iceman or whatever. He used to Silver Surfer. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the hell yeah. it was. But it, 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 some of the lesser-known, you know, of the of the pantheon were interesting to me. But when you get guys that are like your age or my age, and they're kind of like on a weekend, you know, kind of kissing their kids and their wife and then say, you know, for the, I don't know if there is such a man as Astro Man, but they're kind of putting on a fucking cape and going off the weekend. I am Astro Man. And it's kind of, what is Now, this is becoming people's identities, and that's because they've (laughs) lost their traditional heritage and identities. So they're deracinated and they're just kind of floating. Uh, And so in the consumerist culture, just like you can... Uh, buy a new gender, quote unquote. People are buying and purchasing new identities based on you know these these fictional worlds, these imaginal worlds. Uh, and absolutely, that's been de- that's been designed and engineered. And all you have to do to 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 know that that's true is study the history of Disney World and Disneyland. Well, you have, have you been to Have you been to Epcot by by chance? No, no. I only went to the states once, and it was New York only. I didn't get outside New York, so um, it's 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 something to see, just because it it will really blow your mind. And then you know, and I, I was hip to all of the you know conspiracy stuff the last time that I went to to Disney in Florida, and I did it kind of as a project to observe it, and it, it was mind blowing. I mean, you you the for example, when you go through Epcot which is not that great of a ride. It's kind of goofy, but you, you just, you know, I'm talking about the big golf ball, right? That's Epcot center. So you, you ride this roller coaster that just kind of circles around inside the big ball. (laughs) I'm I'm not making this up. You can, I think people have, you know, posted their uh, videos of it on YouTube. You can go watch people riding Epcot. Um, So you go through the story It is a mythology and it's the history of mankind inside Epcot. And so you're like, oh, here you are as the Darwinian apes. Uh, and then you grew up into these ancient civilizations. And so you're riding through the animatronic Egyptian land and you're going through, I'm not joking, you're going through ancient China land. And, then, and so then at the end of it, I'm, I'm at a loss for words just because it's so stupid. So the last part of it is like it, you've moved up into the present day of mankind. And it's like, where are we going into the future? Right, because Epcot's all about futurism, and the the very last, second to last thing that you see (laughs) is a nerd in his basement uh, creating a computer, and it's like this little Bill Gates. It's like a little animatronic Bill Gates guy uh, at in his garage working on a computer, uh, and it's you know, and then and then Epcot 
the, the little module that you're writing in. Then you go into the matrix. That's how it ends. Wow. Yeah. Now you say, well, what's the point of that? So what? Who cares? That's a stupid ride. No, no, no. Epcot is an indoctrination center. The whole thing is the entire project. The whole It's all 100% created by the Pentagon. That's why uh, Walt Disney was doing all of that propaganda. He was making all those propaganda movies. He was involved in the Laurel Canyon stuff. Uh, you know, go back to the, to Daffy Duck uh, telling you to you know, join the military and pay your taxes. That's all. That's all propaganda, and so it's been linked to the Pentagon the entire time. Uh, the, uh, by the way, Disney is its own city state. Did you know that it's like the Vatican? Oh, the Vatican! Wow, it's like uh, like DC, I suppose, as well to some extent. You yes. know, like as bubble. Did you, did you know that it has its own laws and constitutions? No, I didn't know that. But why am I people? Not people do not believe that. I swear to you, that's true. Go look it up. <laughs> Well, well, you know, utopian, sorry, dystopian sci-fi that we've been discussing, one of the common themes is the, the idea of distractions, isn't it? It's all uh, amusements, isn't it? Things to just kind of do instead of, instead of real life, but it's kind of things to keep you busy. And it's kind of, oh, this wonderful this and wonderful that, you know, and, uh, wow. Yeah, what's the Roger Waters song, Amusing Ourselves to Death, based on, uh, based on the Norman Mailer book or something? Yeah, yeah, again, very, very ahead of its time, that book, actually. So, and, th- and this is why my comment about dystopia is this is why I've never had any time for theme parks. I've never had any interest in it. Now, if somebody wants to get up and go on a merry-go-round or maybe go on a roller coaster, there's kind of a, you know, there's a visceral thrill there. Maybe not only a merry-go-round, but on the roller coaster, mm-hmm. it can be quite a physical experience. So I, I get that. I can see now, to me, it just looks like an accident waiting to happen. So you're not going to get me up in one of those. But in general, what you described about Epcot, or whatever, I'm like, why are we doing this? And I, I've been to some interactive museums and stuff that I found interesting. Yeah. It, it depends where it's pitched and what level is, isn't it? You know, but in general, what we would call a theme park to me is like, why am I here? Okay, okay, look, we'll get a hot dog and then we'll go, okay? Because I just don't want to be here. It's always felt to be like one massive distraction, especially when they try to recreate things. You know, the whole idea of going to the middle of a landlocked country and oh, they've created a, they've created a beach. So God forbid you go to the beach. You don't have to go to the beach anymore. You can go to Beach World. Yes, exactly. A, exactly. a completely enclosed, you know, sort of climatically controlled 365 day a year experience, you know. Beaches are so yesterday. Welcome to, you know, Ultra Beach or whatever it happens to be. That was kind of in uh, the last Terry Gilliam movie, Z Theorem? Z Zero Theorem? Uh, I have mixed views on it. It has some interesting insights and, you know, he's always very good with cinematography, but uh, I don't know. It's kind of it, it, to me, it ended kind of nihilistic. But um, I'll tell you, the movie to watch for this point is the independent film that came out four or five years ago called Tomorrowland: Escape from Tomorrowland, or Escape from Tomorrow. I forget the name of it exactly. But uh, are, you familiar, are you familiar with that? I am not. No, you're. you're oh, this is a brilliant film. You got to watch this. You you will love this. So it's all shot in black and white, and the selling point marketing point which there's no way this could be true but the marketing point was that supposedly the filmmakers snuck into disney and filmed the entire thing in the theme park uh without disney knowing now there's no way that that's true because uh the disney has like it's the whole theme park is a smart city under surveillance so there's like you have to scan biometrics to get in like (laughs) there's no way they did that but uh, that was a selling marketing point, which is, I guess, kind of clever. But 
this film, and I did do an analysis of it a long time ago, but uh, it's, it, this was overlooked. People didn't, I guess, didn't see it, maybe didn't have a, uh, as big a marketing as you would think, but very, very deep, very esoteric, very dark themes in this. This uh, It's a dystopian kind of story, actually. But it shows all of the stuff that I'm talking about uh, in the movie. Uh, now, I, it's curious because... It, what I'm suggesting is that it would seem Disney was behind the film if they allowed. I, I mean, you know, with all the, that goes into shooting a film, there's no way they did this without Disney knowing inside the freaking theme park. Mm. But so if Disney was involved covertly, then you are about to have your mind blown uh, about Revelation of the Method when you watch this movie. No, that's uh, that, that's just I think moved to the top of my watch list. To follow up on something that you mentioned in one of the previous installments of this series, uh, you mentioned that, you know, there were laughable idea of whole states being given over to particular themes. You said, like, you know, you laughed at the idea of Harry Potter land. And I immediately thought, well, you know, Westworld, what happens? Now, exactly. Westworld's a new thing on TV, but I'm thinking back, which I haven't seen yet, but you can tell us about that in a second. But going back to the original movie of Westworld based on a Michael Crichton story, what you've got there is a grown man going to just regressing into like you yep. know prepubescent boyhood going to this wild west theme park with the latest tech where they can pretend to be cowboys and not only pretend to be cowboys badass cowboys that get the girl drink the bourbon and get to gun down the bad guy these um weak saplings i don't know, couldn't fight their way out of a wet paper bag but they can mm-hmm. they can all be clint eastwood for the weekend you know mm-hmm. and uh, what is that if not that immersive virtual you know not virtual reality but uh, that immersive experience of giving yourself it's it's beyond the fan convention isn't it is it just turns into um no that's exactly right and michael crichton has it to where you know in the story it's the it's rich people who can pay you know these exorbitant amounts and i'm just saying it would be funny if you extended that to be like oh no no you're actually going to like tennessee will become harry potter land (laughs) i'm joking but uh but yeah, no, I did do an analysis of Westworld and I watched it and, uh, I think Jonathan Nolan was the writer, uh, and then JJ uh, Abrams directed it and Jonathan Nolan being Christopher Nolan's brother. And, uh, so you're going to get a lot of the, the Nolan themes of the maze, which always comes up in Christopher Nolan stuff. Uh, and so there were interesting elements to it, but I was, it was underwhelming for me. Um, I expected more. I thought it would would give us more than kind of, I mean, they did diverge a little bit and introduce, you know, new ideas building on the the Crichton story. Um, But I I just, I felt like it still, it just lacked something. Something was missing. It was, it was a little too predictable. Everybody kind of, everybody that I know that watched it kind of figured it out like right away what was going on, what the, what the plot was. Uh, I don't mean that it's a synthetic city. Everybody knows that, but, I mean, the inter-story plot of of why the characters are doing what they're doing. Um, but it does have the very point that you're talking about. It's the prediction of the uh, elites in this in this story uh, immersing themselves in synthetic worlds because they're the only ones that have the money, you know, to, to be involved in this. Uh, and then the synthetic world kind of breaks out of its uh, in, encasement and, you know, that's what we're kind of left with is, you know, where are we going to go next next season? You know, are, are the the bots actually going to, like, take over the world? <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. 
further to what we were talking about, this theme of emasculation in general, and I say this is not just affecting men, it's affecting all human beings uh, to some extent, um, particularly those who are like losing themselves in it, losing their bodies and their minds. Is there any link, oh, I wonder, between this demonization uh, on the one hand, you know, the holding up with this superhero character, but on the other hand, a demonization of manhood or womanhood in the real world. You know, it's almost like, yeah, you get a screen superhero, but you can't be a superhero. You can't as a father, or as a husband, or as a, a wife or mother or or grandmother or son. or You know, you can't attain that in your real life. You know, you've got to be pathetic and weak and and, and the rest of it. And, you, you know, be told what to do and... Uh, to go along, to get along. And is there any co- uh, connection between that? And then you look at people like Bill Gates and, uh, now look, again, not every, I'm not saying that everybody's got to be a particular type of individual in body or in mind, but I'm, for the pr- purposes of our discussion, I'm just looking at parallels. And you look at someone like that who's, um, physically deeply unimpressive. And then you look, you think of Wizard of Oz and, and the story there and what's revealed to us in the end, you know, behind the curtain. And then you think of someone like David Rockefeller, for example, who I think he recently mm-hmm. bought it, didn't he? And you yeah. know, that, that sort of like, you know, what a decrepit old demon. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what could, could a man aspire to be anything less? If you, <laughs> if you see what I mean. And yeah. uh, so I'm just wondering about interesting parallels there about the messages that were handed about what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, uh, you know, regardless of your sexuality and the future, you know. Yeah, well, there were very strong feminist themes in uh, Westworld this this go round, and that's not my interpretation. That's pretty pretty obvious, and you know, other critics that were writing on it were championing the, the feminist themes. Uh, so basically, there's not really any good male characters in the film. Um, maybe the uh, the black guy who's uh, the Arnold character. I forget the actor's name, but I guess you could argue he's kind of a good guy, but then you realize that he's not a guy. <laughs> so a little bit of a spoiler there, but um, the the message there, of course, is another one of the themes that we've seen throughout many of these transhumanist films is that uh, the, the bots are humanized and the humans are roboticized. So humans are robotic. They're totally driven by evil. Oh, but don't worry because uh, there's a bright future of the bots uh, and they are compassionate and strong and virtuous and all of these all these uh selling points basically of transhumanism that you see in movies like ai you know where, where the Haley joel osmond character is uh has the the empathy and the the humane characteristics and then the the humans in that movie are for the most part all shitheads totally uh and that's by design too i think that's that's all part of the um Inversion really is what what this is all about that we've been talking about with you know Bertrand Russell's quotes and whatnot. Um, so yes, I think you're onto something there with the idea of. I think you're right. So what I said earlier, you could you could argue that women are being masculinized, men are being feminized in the re- real world, uh, but as long as a big portion of your time is and attention and focus and energy is directed to the synthetic world, then the elites are happy. I think that's the main point. We could uh, discuss this all day, really, but in as we begin to bring things for a close this time round, to what extent, uh, this is a theme that came out in your book also, do you think that kind of a coming to the surface of a lot of these themes and 
people coming to an understanding of some of what they're being presented with and how that's working, there seem to be two uh, divergent trends. One is people kind of waking up to some of these ideas that we're talking about and other people getting further and further lost Mm-hmm. In, in this kind of like matrix. So how do you read that situation? What do you feel negative about? What do you feel positive about? You know, Well, the positive side is, as I said for a long time, I think precisely, yes, the, the, the establishment, the system might master technology and we can think about it like the Death Star, uh, you know, but it's kind of like the rebellion in Star Wars consistently says to <laughs> the Empire, uh, you know, I think Darth Vader even says, you know, don't put too much trust in this this technological terror that you've created, because human humanity and the world, the universe, is more than matter and techne. There, there's spirit, uh, which I think has precedence over those things. And so, yes, even though they might master mind control and these different tactics, the good the the good takeaway from uh, Logan's Run and from Zardoz is that the elite systems usually collapse in on themselves and you can see that in all the the attempts throughout history at trying to create these unrealistic utopias is that they eventually collapse and so yeah you might have to go through a period of of uh of the dystopia you know the dark period uh but they they don't work because of the fact that they're self-destructive uh and so anytime you get these systems that turn on on humanity itself and the problem for the the elite is that they too are humans. Uh, it's it's a self destructive cancer, uh, and cancer eats away at all of them. Uh, you know they they might put all these, uh, they might attack all of us with this stuff, but you can't totally immunize yourself from it. And that's what we saw the the elites trying to do in both Zardoz and and uh, Logan's Run to an extent, but it doesn't work. So I think that because it's built on a faulty anthropology and a faulty worldview, ultimately it's not going to work. No, I, I think a lot of the techno-utopianism is really, uh, which you can you can put the zeitgeist movement uh, into that category. I mm-hmm. think it's not unlike, in many ways, the 2012 idea, you know, the idea of a, a shift in consciousness and that we're going to ascend or be raptured or whatever it happens to be. The, the idea it's this sort of magical process that's going to allow us to sidestep difficult problems, you know, a bit like going to adulthood from childhood without having to go through the teenage years <laughs> when you have to kind of learn how, Limit, how well, to lim- be. Limitations are, are a good thing, and there's no there's no way to ever get rid of all limitations. And really, that whole project is is built on that presupposition. That's actually what Aldous Huxley says. That the, he says the enemies of the future will be people who in any way and in any sense believe in limitations and exclusions. So that's why you're seeing the attack on language, the idea of, oh, we have 60 genders now. Uh, oh, words don't mean what they mean. Um, all of that, there's just no way that can work. I mean, it might cause some havoc. It might cause destabilization and, and wreck a lot of things for a long time. But it's just so fundamentally out of accord with the actual world in which we live that you you know you can only sustain synthetic systems for so long before they have the internal problem of breakdown uh, and I don't think that they'll ever overcome that and it doesn't matter how many bots that you create to program other bots you're never going to escape the natural world oh well whatever progress they make with virtual reality to be honest I think that you know movies are a great metaphor for this that you know the screen is bleeding 
into so-called real life so much now that you can see a lot of individuals that we referred to who have actually kind of lost track of what is what. You know, people who are going, maybe going to show up for work on at, uh, at Target, let's just say, or at Walmart, they're going to turn up on Monday morning dressed as Astro Man, and they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're they're going to walk in, and somebody's going to go, "Oh, hi, Jim. You know, what's with the uh, what's with the tights and the cape and the uh, and the goggles? You know, I am Astro Man." Yeah, well, Jim, that's fine. Do that in your lunch hour, but could you get to your station, please? No, Astro Man, you know. <laughs> and when he gets hauled away in the, uh, you know, to the rubber room. So, but uh, I just think that that's an increasing trend that we're going to see. It's going to be an interesting ride because it works both ways, isn't it? You know, you get um, stuff, real world stuff that gets turned into movies, you know, it becomes uh, so-called reality TV, I think, is a brilliant manifestation of this. It's kind of like, um, I'm going to tune into the TV uh, for some real reality, because the reality, mm-hmm. the real reality I've got, I don't really want. So let's yeah. really, let's really get the real thing uh, on the TV. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And uh, I mean, they're going to keep pushing the limits, but again, you know, it's you just can't you can't force the entire biosphere into something that is anti-biosphere. And when we look at similar projects in the past that have attempted to do this kind of stuff, like. Bolshevism or Stalinism are great examples of trying to impose an ideal that is totally mismatched with the real world. It just collapses. And, and the, the, the Jacques Frescos and the Saint Simons, uh, and the zeitgeist types that you're talking about who are really kind of at the core of the, this, this ideology, uh, it's just, it's just not going to work. I mean, and, and again, it's because they, arrogantly think they understand everything about humanity because they've you know mastered some technological thing this is not true i mean humans are humans and human persons transcend nature i believe that's part of the the theology that i adhere to uh and so that informs my worldview and that's the the vantage point from which i think i can accurately critique and and argue against uh, the idea that you can engineer man into being something other than man well, to borrow a phrase from uh, Mad Max, we're either going to crash or we're going to crash through. So uh, stick around to find out which it's going to be. Uh, today, Jay, we've been talking um, about your book, Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults and Symbols in Film. That's published not so long ago. That's available everywhere. Now, if you would, please get it Please get it from me at my website. Yeah, well, tell folks about that and also just tell them you've just shot a TV show. That's in the can for a broadcast in the not-too-distant future. So, yeah, share your web details and tell folks about sure. the TV show. Yeah, so uh, the book can be obtained from me, whether you're in the U.S. or, uh, well, actually anywhere in the world. I have a outside the U.S. PayPal that you can do too. And yeah, it's a little bit pricey, but uh, it helps the author. You know, if you can get it directly from me, not through Amazon. Amazon undercuts authors pretty bad in their their uh, process, and that's why they offer it so cheap. But um, so you can get the book there, and I do sign the copies, and then you can also get uh, access to my archives where I have a lot of interviews and talks and podcasts and lectures uh, the second half that you pay for the first half is always free. Um, and then, you know, probably a thousand or so posts and articles at the website, big vast archive that you can dive into. That's all free. And, um, yeah, we just sh- shot 17 episodes, uh, very high production quality. Uh, I'm very impressed with what uh, the production company had there and how it all turned out. Um, it, it all went well, went pretty smooth. And it'll be basically a Siskel and Ebert style show of me and Jay Weedner of 
Kubrick's Odyssey and Room 237 fame, going back and forth, kind of debating and critiquing and analyzing film from a, a, the kind of vantage point that you, that you and I have been doing it, right? So not the, the bland Siskel Ebert, you know, this is good, this is bad, they were good actors, they were bad actors view, uh, from the symbology side of things. Uh, and I, that's why I think it, it's going to be really high quality, um, not like anything else that's out there in TV and media. Um, and I think it'll be a couple months before it, it's done in the post-production, and then <clears throat> it'll be available on streaming on the Gaia Network, Gaia TV, which is available on Amazon Prime, um, uh, Roku, Apple TV, and in the U.S., at least, it will also be available on a lot of uh, cable and satellite. So through, uh, like, Xfinity cable in the U.S. and things like that. So, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, th- I think it's going to do really well. Um, and if it does good ratings-wise, they will order up another 22 episodes. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Welcome to Utopia. 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 Welcome to Utopia.